Christopher Lyons has been head librarian of Rare Books and Special Collections McGill University for the past two years. He joined the McGill Library in 2004 as liaison librarian in the Olsler Library of the History of Medicine, where he was subsequently appointed head librarian. Chris has presented and published in the fields of librarianship and library history. His professional activities include serving as president of the archives and librarians in the history of the health sciences. In 2015, he was granted the title of Oldler Librarian by the library's board of curators in recognition of his professional and scholarly attainments. He was also elected to the Grolier Club of New York that same year. Christopher Lyons, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Nigel. It's great to be here, and I think, um, I mean, listening to everything you said, I think the title Book Nerd that we spoke of before would probably summarize my life and interests and passions far more than any of that would. <laughs> so maybe we couldn't say I present to you Chris Lyons' Book Nerd, but that's what you're getting. Well, that's why you're on the show. Thank you. I'm amongst friends. I know this. We are here to talk about Sir William Olsler. You uh, wrote an article in the Bibliographical Society of Canada's... Is this a quarterly? Quarterly papers? Papers of the... It's it's published twice yearly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this was the fall of 2015. The title of the article is The Touch Divine of Noble Nature's Gong. Sir William Osler as a book collector. So what does that little quote mean? Ah, the quote comes from uh, something Sir William wrote. It refers to what he saw as the reason for collecting books. And it really summarized for me very nicely the rationale or the motivation behind a particular collector who had a very particular idea of what he wanted to do. So I think I need to say a little bit about who Sir William Osler sure, is. Before so before we get to the crux of it. Yes, indeed. Well, what, he was born in the Ontario outback. Indeed. The That's and right. And he became known as the father, by some of us anyway, the father of modern medicine. So how do you get there? Well, that's what's so exciting about this story because I think it sums up, for me anyway, a certain type of Canadian. I'll say it in this way, and I, I mean, if we're going to congratulate ourselves and our personalities um, in that someone can be so incredibly accomplished yet so incredibly humble at the same time. And... I'm thinking because Jean Vanier died recently, and I think there's someone else who, who is a visible saint. And, you know, as Canadians, if you don't, you know, strap on a pair of skates, uh, you tend to get forgotten fairly quickly, with some exceptions. We don't tend to celebrate our heroes. And I would argue strenuously that Sir William Osler is one of the heroes of Canada. So, young family in the outback of Ontario, Bondhead, north of Toronto. The Osler family came from England, and his father was a minister, an Anglican minister, who came to the colonies to you know, administer to the, the recent settlers. And he and his wife had a number of children, and several of whom were very accomplished. Sir William's born July 12, 1849. Now, July 12th, and the name William should be ringing some bells for some of us because that's uh, King Billy Day, Sir King William of Orange's Orange Day celebration. Now, you'd think his father may have been an orange man for having a son named William, but it wasn't his choice. Uh, the Orange Lodge, which was a powerful fraternal organization at the time, celebrated quite vigorously Orange Day, and uh, when they had heard that uh, the local minister had fathered a son, they, of course, went over to congratulate him and said, well, you are going to name this child William, aren't you? Because he's born on this day. 
And I guess his father uh, was many things, stupid not being one of them, figured you're not going to argue with a bunch of drunken guys with a propensity to violence. So he said, yes, of course. It's exactly what I was going to do. So Sir William, no, he wasn't born as Sir William. Uh, William also was born in 1849, uh, went to medical school first in Toronto. So did and, he get there by scholarship or by the, the father pay the... It's a very good question. He, I believe, was able to to study medicine in part because of support from people around him, uh, because I think there was a realization that he was quite a capable person, and his father was well-connected, and not in a sort of a underhanded way, just, um, I think, admired. And Sir William had gone initially to Trinity um, School in well, now in Port Hope, boarded there and had close relationships with, with um, some of his professors. And then subsequently through, again, another relationship. In Sir William's life, there are a lot of significant relationships he's had with people who, you know, now we'd call mentors. Mm. So as a, a young man from a learned but not wealthy background um, and not a privileged background by any sense of the imagination, was given opportunities I think in part because of his own character and in part maybe because of the nature of society at that time to, at least in an in informal sense, to recognize people's abilities. His so, parents must have been pretty good parents, though, you think? They were they're very well regarded. No, no, very well regarded um, by their children. His mother lived to be 100 years old and became a bit of a matriarch of the family. And I think... It was a very warm family because certainly uh, Sir William himself was wonderful with children, was just one of these guys who, even at the height of his fame when he was a world-renowned physician and an inspiration, and as indeed, as some people say, the father of modern medicine, the father of bedside medicine, there's all these accolades. So, So a superstar in today's parlance, yet... Here he is, he would get down on his hands and knees and play with kids and be the silliest one in the room. At one point, when he was a Regis professor of, at Oxford, there was two little boys who lived next door, and he, the three of them would get up to all kinds of trouble. So here's a man in his 60s, you know, Regis professor of medicine, and two, like, toddlers, and the three of them would just go out on a tear. And at one point, I, th- I think I get this story right, some noble very distinguished person was visiting them and was out in the the, the house in Oxford had a, a veranda, a stone veranda. And I think the three of them went up to the second floor and got some water balloons and started tossing them down on this person. So so the biggest kid of all was probably Sir William. So he, he was this warm, wonderful person. And he, to finish his medical degree, of course, as a McGill person, I always like to say this. Obviously, when he showed promise in medicine, they said, why waste your time here in Toronto? You should be at McGill. And then, so he went and finished his, his medical education here. In his, his dad, just to wind back yeah. a bit, his dad had a 1,500-volume library. Yes. So that probably didn't hurt. No, indeed. And, and that's an important consideration in, in Osler's formation, uh, was that he was exposed to books. Now, being a country parson, as his father was, it was not uncommon for them to be better educated than other people in their milieu, but then also to have books and also to be curious. Like a lot of uh, clergymen in the countryside were often amateur naturalists yeah. and would study, and his father was no different, was very interested in natural history. And so he would have grown up in an environment that would have predisposed him for the field he went into, which was medicine, but then also for book collecting and appreciation for books. Mm-hmm. So all of us who are bibliophiles, it's always interesting to think, where were we bitten? It's almost, it feels like in our DNA, and it doesn't matter where we'd be, but yes, if, there was that. So, right, okay. And it did predispose him to a love of learning and a love of books. It's, sorry, just one yes. more thing. Yes, it's sir. In your, it's in your, uh, or maybe it's elsewhere, uh, the fact that he had an uncle who'd written some books Uncle Edward, who was a surgeon, he wrote articles, uh, poetry, and had some books published. Okay. Okay. I just thought, you know, in addition to the library at home, mm-hmm. he had an uncle who was... Uh, well, the, the thing he writes about in terms of influences were um, Father Johnson and 
when he goes to Toronto, this guy Boswell, I'm blanking on his first name. I want to say John, but that might not be it. Okay. Um, who were both people with large libraries who and were bibliophiles as well. So. Yeah, and Johnson actually yeah. read aloud uh, Sir Thomas Brown's Religio Medici yeah. to him in class, I think. Anyway, yeah. uh, we digress. But I just did, just again, the fact is there were some important influences yeah. that turned into books. Indeed, yeah. 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 Okay. So there was, and, and, and there were a number of them, and it's interesting sometimes when you look at that to see, if you're studying someone's life, is it saying, okay, the, there are certain things that shape them, but their predispositions in sometimes, and I think in the case of Osler, it's important to, to realize that they, they all kind of come together to explain, you know, not only why he was collecting, what he was collecting, but what the purpose was. And because Osler is a well-documented individual, not only for himself, but for the people who loved him and the number of biographies that were written about him, we can get a better understanding of, okay, what did books mean for him? And I think this is where his thinking is Canadian. So he goes on, he teaches at McGill for 10 years, he goes to University of Pennsylvania to work and to teach in their medical school. It's a great school, right? Yeah. It's like an it is one of the important ones. It had been the preeminent faculty of medicine for much of the 19th century, but had sort of slipped and bringing Osler in was like any hockey team you know where you're you're you've got your stars but they're getting old and long in the tooth like the 67 Toronto Maple Leafs and then so you've got to bring in some new blood and Osler was some of that new blood he was an up-and-coming individual who had written a number of articles and some of them quite important and also was making a name for himself as a, a medical teacher as well and he's there for five years, and then he gets recruited to be one of the founders of the Johns Hopkins Medical School and uh, Hospital. And this is extremely important, and, and this is where Oser moves from the level of talented newcomer to established, maybe, you know, top-of-his-game individual in that he is one of four people recruited to go to Hopkins because Hopkins wanted to have the best medical school and teaching hospital in the United States, which was a bold statement for a place that was in a backwater, Baltimore, Mm -hmm. in that time, in the late 1880s, early 1890s. So he is one of four people who were recruited to really give the school a top-notch start and the school itself was and is amazing in the level of medical education. And Osler's influence was not only in the areas he taught in. Yeah, in which was, what he, he was more a number of different areas. It's quite interesting because his, his love and interest in medicine was Catholic. So he could and did write and publish in numerous areas, including neurology and cardiology, but his sort of main training was more in pathology. But his big impact in the medical world, or one of the biggest of his impacts, was he writes this great textbook on medicine called The Principles and Practice of Medicine. Now, the idea was you could, in one volume, describe not only, you know, the whole cover the whole realm of medicine, but of treatments and understanding of it. And the idea is that one volume could really be a good, if not, you know, last book you ever read on medicine or the first book you ever read on medicine would be something that could really help a physician and a student in their practice and their understanding. So Osler says that, you know, his his success was also his greatest difficulty because when you write a famous textbook, you have to revise it. So he would constantly have to revise his textbook. So that between 1891 and his death in 1919, there were eight editions of this. And think of it, pre-computer days, the way in which you revise a textbook and write a textbook is with tons and tons of paper around you. There's no, you know, reading things online and everything like that. So you need a great library to go to find information. And then I, we have examples of this, and I didn't know this about how you would edit a book is the publisher or someone would give you an interleaved copy of this book. So every second page of the book would be blank. So what you would do is make your annotations and your changes 
by writing it on the blank pages and you'd cross out or change the text and then you'd write in insert this kind of like a dummy yeah exactly exactly and and then and then so it's neat you know from a researchers and bibliophiles perspective because you can see how uh, you know an edition of a book would be transformed into a new one and you can see okay what was the thinking behind it what were what were the annotations and so it's quite fascinating that way so this this gave him the money to really help to build up his collection yeah, i was going to ask you uh was this kind of like a cash cow that, that basically turned him into a rich man for the rest of his life it, not as rich as one would think and not as rich as physicians would be say relative to the rest of the population today but certainly gave him the means to really indulge his collecting passion it's an interesting question in that there are a number of elements to collecting which i think are important to keep in mind so also, just to finish just quickly, in 1905, is named Regis Professor of Medicine at Oxford. This is a huge, huge, huge honor. And for a colonial, like he was, more great still. But what was it that they must have seen something? Yes, what okay. By that point, he really had established himself as this great man of medicine. The textbook being one of them, okay. his numerous articles being another, his students being the other. Like The thing to keep in mind, which is interesting, is Johns Hopkins becomes this great incubator of medical leaders. Right. So he is churning out generations in that way of people who are very much attached to him. And the other element is him as a person. This is where I like to think of him as a Canadian, in that he was a wonderful teacher, a wonderful friend, a very warm and caring person. And his whole approach to medicine was that there's very much a respect for the patient. So this becomes very modern. And today people are rediscovering Osler for this reason, is that he believed that a lot of healing takes place in the relationship between the physician and the patient. That's so true. Just yeah. so long as you know someone cares for you, mm-hmm. that makes that makes all the difference. Yeah. And yet, I mean, it, maybe it's more common now, but still, you know, these specialists coming in, yeah. a, a lot yeah. of them are assholes. <laughs> you know, they don't, or let's put it more kindly. No, but that, uh, no, they, sometimes, they have, yes. They yeah. don't have the greatest human yeah. Uh, yeah. interaction skills. Yeah. Whereas he obviously did. Yeah, and he and believed... He recognized it. He recognized it, and he taught it. And he taught the idea of compassion and respect for patients. And at a time when medicine could be much more barbarous, to be blunt, than it is today, mm-hmm. and where there was not necessarily the same appreciation for the psychosomatic side or the emotional side of medicine. So... For him, treating the patient with respect or as a human being with an illness as opposed to an illness attached to a human being, meaning, and going back to your point about specialists, meaning they're not just a heart case. They're an individual with a family and with a background and with a life who has a sickness. And that meant being honest with them and treating them well, telling them what to expect, and that provides a great deal of comfort. And he was also like that with his colleagues. He was also like that with his students. Uh, one of his students wrote in an anniversary volume of his life that he said every student felt like they were his special friend. Like he, the way he treated them and the, his kindness and his warmth made everyone think like, oh my gosh, I must be a really wonderful person for this great man to be so enthusiastic to, for my company. But then he realized he's like that with everyone. Yeah, yeah. Even to the point where, and we're going back to the, the, the books, that he collected historical medical books fairly early in his career. And when he was at Hopkins, he would have students over at his house on a Saturday night. And he always said, you know, students are always starving. So you always want to, you should feed them. So he said he'd feed them, they'd have a great dinner, and he said after dinner over beer and baccy, as he said, so after beer and tobacco, he'd sit around and he'd take his books out and he would pass them around and he would talk about, you know, the authors and these people in medicine and historically important in medicine. And so what he was doing was essentially initiating the students, like he would everyone around him, into the, not just the medical profession, but the aura of medicine and the 
as he says, the you know, the touch divine of noble nature is gone. The idea of communing with people from the past who had a huge impact on the development of medicine. So part of his biblio, I was going to say bibliotherapy, and it might even be considered <laughs> bibliotherapy. Yeah. Part of his idea behind medicine was he said, well, with understanding the history of medicine, that's important because it gives you a context, it gives you a perspective. That means you understand, say, disease much better if you understand the history of our understanding of the disease than if you just start with point A. So he said to everyone, like if you're a technician, you know, that's all you need to know. But if you understand more, you can you can think broader and yeah. deeper. And well, so, it was also, I mean, it's interesting, this idea of empathy and how valuable it is to the profession. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I've insulted the, <laughs> the profession, <laughs> Clear that uh, you can edit it out, Nigel. <laughs> but but he really did think that there were a lot of maybe a, you know, more than the norm, really noble people in the profession. Yeah, yeah, that was one part of what fueled his passion for the past was the fact that he thought within medicine, mind you, his perspective, he would be the first to not feel like full of himself, but uh, he felt that there were a number of people to respect and to be inspired from the past of medicine. So he had his heroes. And for him, it was important to recognize them and to promote them. So for him, medical history and book collecting were important because books were the vehicle to get an understanding of the past. So there was, there was a love of the item itself, and he was like all of us who are book collectors. You know, you get excited over bindings, you get excited over paper, you get excited over all those physical aspects of the book, you get excited over the age and who owned them and everything like that. There was also, they are conveners, or convey, they convey the past to the present and the future, so having them around was really important. But it's almost like in times... The, I get the feeling there was almost like a quasi-mystical thing about it. It's like having them around meant you had the physical item somehow seemed to bear something of the individuals of the past themselves. So he thought having the book was part of that connection you would get with the past. So his collecting was informed by a desire to put together, in essence, like a shrine to medicine. And the books themselves are, are like the relics of the saints. Mm. And the you go there for uplift, for nourishment, for inspiration. Yeah. And in putting that collecting together, it makes you sort of similar to like a priest. And so he, um, in a talk he gave once, described collectors of the people who are the leaven of the whole lump. So they're the ones who help raise the collective profession through their collecting of books but it's not what is that exactly what does that mean okay so the idea is this case is you could be a collector and we know of these and we sometimes joke about these are the people who are more like hoarders so you collect books because you love them or you collect them as an investment and you know you put them in safety deposit boxes you don't even look at them you don't care about them you're collecting high spots you have no interest in them and it's all just about you, either you and the financial gain you'll make or you and the fact that you have something and yeah. someone else doesn't yeah. and ha-ha-ha. Bragging, ha, rights, bragging yeah. rights, yes. Oser was the opposite. He saw collecting as a way of then sharing what you've collected with others. Well, like I, you did sitting around with the students. And exactly. Because exactly. that just is an essential part of being a, a, a bibliophile, I think, is you've got a collection, you love yes. putting your book into the hands of someone else and talking about yeah. everything you know about it. Yeah, and it's a way of sharing an enthusiasm. Yeah. And, you know, at its best, it's not bragging rights. It's no. a way of sharing your, your enthusiasm. Yeah. And there are a lot of people like that. In my job as head of rare books, I get a number of people contact me who say, you know, it's not like I think this is worth a ton of money or anything like that. It's just I hate the idea of I put this collection together and I'm going to die, or I have to move, and it's just going to be dispersed. And I said, like, it's just I want someone to benefit from these. Yeah. And so the idea was people who think that way are act, acting to raise up 
and the, everyone else around them who get exposed to these books as a result. Yeah. So it raises us all together. It's like the, the tide that rises raises all but, boats but together. Again, the, the definition of the raising is yeah. it, it's what? It's making them better people? Yeah. Better doctors? Better doctors. And, and I would argue better people, yes. Okay. So the idea is you, you have the collection. It's, it has very important ramifications for what he ends up doing. So you put together a collection like he did of people. You say, this is the important moments in medical history. These are the important people in medical history. Or this is the important literature either written by docs or about docs written by other people. And you make that accessible. And through that, the people who read it, yes, are, understand medicine better and who are inspired by, you know, the greats that went before them. You yeah. have these role models. He had role models as a young man and as a boy who inspired him. He, in turn, did that for others. So for so many others through his being, but then also through his collection, which is where you have the understanding of, like, the noble calling of, yeah. of doing this. You say that he wrote about a 100- hundred biographical sketches. Some yeah. of the most inspiring books I've ever read are about sure. he, he felt the same way. Indeed, he did. So he had the, the people who were the mentors in his life, but then he had the people who were mentors not through direct connection, but through their books. So people like Andre Vesalius. This is this great Renaissance anatomist who was able to overturn 1,500 years of thinking of how the body worked through this research he did in you know dissecting cadavers and so looking at the human body itself remember at a time when you weren't supposed to do that so a lot of the understanding of the human body was derived from apes and what apes looked like and what their you know structures were like and their organs were like whereas he said no you have to go and see the real thing so and then share that now what Vesalius did was in 1543, at the age of 28, published perhaps the most important book in the history of medicine. It was an anatomical atlas with wonderful and, for the time, very sophisticated illustrations. It was a big book, big folio. He was so enamored with Vesalius as a person and with that book as a real monument of not only great publishing and illustration, but just great thought and original thought, all the things one would really respect in a medical researcher, he would always buy a copy when he found it. He says, it's far too good a book to ever sit on a bookshelf. So he gave away six copies of this book when he died. By the time he died, he had given away six copies. These are important, expensive books. Okay, so here's the funny thing, is they were expensive relative relative to other books at the time, but in absolute terms... When Oser was collecting, things were so much cheaper in absolute terms. So now I'll give you an example where I've done a bit of research. He bought a copy of Copernicus's book on the solar system, 1543 as well, same year as, as um, Vesalius's book on anatomy. And he bought it for either 13 or 17 pounds at a Cambridge bookshop in the early 20th century. And he said it was a very, very, very hard book to find. He said he had missed out another copy that was sold at auction. This was the only other time he had seen it for sale at all, and he bought it. Mm-hmm. And he bought it in today's dollars, the equivalent of about three or $4,000. So if you were to spend as much as he did today for that, it was about that much money, a few thousand dollars. The reality is, Because of the way the book market has gone, particularly high spots in book collecting, it usually retails for about 2 to $2.5 million U.S. So if that was the case, Oser would not be buying any copies of that. Now, the Vesalius now goes from about four dollars to $500,000. So again, if they cost that much in Osler's time, he wouldn't be picking them up. So these were just far more affordable and findable uh, then. And so he would give copies every time he found one. He would buy it and give it to either an institution or a friend. There's a funny story of him coming to McGill with a copy under his arm. He writes about this in the bibliography of his collection. He's felt very proud of himself because he's going to do this great gesture for his alma mater. And he goes to the medical library and presents this copy and says, you know, this is for you. And they 
look quizzically and then show him a display case in the library already with his name on it and a copy of the Vesalius. So he said he'd already given a copy to Miguel and forgot he did. So there he goes. So he goes, okay, so next he writes, you know, having realized his blunder, he offered it to an inst- a library in Boston only to be told the same thing. He'd already given them a copy. So finally, the new, he was, yes, he couldn't even keep track of all the places he gave it to. So finally, he, he realized the New York Academy of Medicine didn't have a copy. So they were given the second copy. When he died, his collection came to McGill. So he had put together a collection of about 8,000 books. It comes to McGill, and he had written, you know, because you're going to get my copy, the copy you already have should go to, and I've read this, and it says dot, 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 dot. So he hadn't decided who to give it to yet. So we, when we got it, obviously, thought, well, he didn't say who to give it to, so we kept both. So we do have two copies now. We have the one he gave to McGill and then the one that came with his collection, his own personal copy. And we're not giving them to anyone. Anyway. You know, the fact that the prices were low in the 1880s, 1890s, you identify that period as being a washing room. Oh, books. yes. Mm-hmm. And a number of large English public collections came on the market as a result of changes in taxation law, which made selling inherited property easier. So that's one reason, I guess. Right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Any other reasons yeah. that come to mind? There are, there are a few things that are going on, and Osler's collecting dates probably the 1870s, up until his death, literally like the week before he died. He was still collecting books and getting books that, you know, fit in his collection. In particular, uh, not only the breakup of estates or selling of estate property, as you mentioned, the First World War had a devastating effect on a number of, of houses and collections. So those went up for sale as well because a lot of the, the major and minor collections that were held in private hands in estates where it was inherited, if the son who was supposed to inherit everything died, as many did, then the collections and everything else would be broken up and sold off, or just if people didn't have the money with introduction of things like taxation. There was also a well-developed and developing, I should say, network of antiquarian booksellers and collections. So there was material around. So there was, you know, it was the beginning of a sophisticated I won't say global, but, you know, at least Western Europe and uh, Southern Europe and North America network of collectors, antiquarian booksellers, catalogs, auctions. And so there was a much more on the market. So maybe, although I, I, I wouldn't go too far in this analogy, but if you think when ABE, A Books, starts doing online book selling there weren't that many dealers on so it was kind of a bit of a golden age for people back then because you could list something all of a sudden you had limitless number of people who would see that you've got that for sale and then you could sell them more because all of a sudden your your clientele there, there went from, so many copies up there yeah like, then I, when more and more people got into the game it became way more difficult to sell a book yeah and the prices dropped because yeah. i said all of a sudden there were there was a glut yeah. You know, with the exception of, again, the high spots, a lot of stuff just, you know, dropped in value. And, and my friends in the, you know, the trade tell me you know, they've had to price things down. Things yeah. that books that you could sell for $500 20 years ago, you can't give away now. Yeah. So it's just, it's been a real. So there was a lot of books around. And Osler, Osler was like all of us bibliophiles, was persistent, consistent, obsessive. And had a great deal of fun in, of course, hunting these out, going to auctions or having dealers go to auctions for him, going to the antiquarian bookstores, getting the catalogs, yes. He loved loved going around and uh, doing bibliotourism. The fact is that that tells us that these stores actually were worth visiting, whereas the sad thing now is it seems like a lot of the book dealers have kind of gone through and taken a lot of the good stuff out of all the bookstores yeah. so they can sell them at book fairs. I don't yeah. it's not it's not entirely like that. Yeah. But it's it's, it's changed a lot. Yeah. The market 
it, it's a fascinating study of, of the supply of rare books in what's considered a rare book or a collectible book now. And sometimes I think the, the collecting trends shift because as certain things become inaccessible mm-hmm. because of price and rarity, uh, other things pick up and then they become expensive. So ephemera, which is something I think I personally and professionally started collecting maybe 15 years ago, I have certainly seen a big difference in, in the market there in terms of how much you would pay for stuff. Photography is another one where photographs are becoming and things that are illustrated with photographs, particularly older material, has become much more expensive. So things shift. One of the problems is, I think, is us, is as librarians, is as the rare book libraries have grown in number and in their collections, what's happened is fewer and fewer things then are on the market because when we buy things we tend not to release them so if osler no, not osler necessarily because he gave his collection to the library but other people they collected material say they got a better copy they'd sell the worst copy you know the, the previous copy or they'd sell their whole collection at some point and then it meant that stuff came back on the market so you could get it so the supply was still not bad whereas now they're fewer and fewer of them, so the ones that do come out on the market are now that much more expensive because they're much much rarer. So sorry, everyone. I apologize. He had a described volume by Voltaire's La Horia. Yes, that was a that's pretty nice. That was a gift to him from his friends in Baltimore when he left Johns Hopkins to go to Oxford in 1905. They decided that they were going to give him something special. And so they chipped in and bought an inscribed Voltaire uh, Ariad, and it's inscribed by Voltaire to his doctor. Voltaire himself was a medical doctor. That's why Osler collected him. But it's over and above that is the fact that it's inscribed by his heart. It's also beautifully bound. So if anyone wants to come and have a look at it, you're welcome to come to McGill and, and look at the Osler Library collection. Earlier we talked about the power of the great minds uh, of the past to teach, inspire, and ennoble, but Olsler made sure that his library would be accessible. Yes, yes. I mean, that's so in keeping with his character. So his idea, and that has two elements to it, the accessibility for, you know, the early 20th century. So when he was putting together his collection, by about 1910 or so, he decided it was going to go to McGill because he was grateful to McGill for giving him his start, and he felt that they invested or took a risk in this unknown kid, and so he wanted to pay back, in part, too, because he felt very much as a Canadian, Canada didn't have great collections like this. He felt this is what he could do for his country as well. There's, there was a growing sense of nationalism, but he was certainly a good exponent of it. So he decided it was going to come to McGill, and it did. And in his instructions, he wanted the library to be open not only to specialists or you know scholars, but he wanted it to be open to medical students and even non-McGill medical students. So the idea was in practitioners, everyone should benefit. And he even said... In particular, I want, in the terminology of the time, I want my French-Canadian brethren to have access to this because there's a lot that he found interest. They would find interest. Yeah, because, you know, I mentioned Voltaire. Yes. There's there's also a rich collection of, uh, well, there is a rich collection of French literature in there. Yeah, Rabelais in particular, a spectacular collection, again, because of the medical collection, but then also a lot of French medicine because, of Mm -hmm. course, France was no... um, no sluggard when it came to producing, you know, interesting medical, you know, research and breakthroughs. And again, it, it speaks to his expansiveness of character because, again, going back to the idea, mid nineteenth century Victorian Anglo Canadian Anglo British Canadian, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to, or in someone like him, to not think of you know, francophones as being equals to anglophones. And, you know, the Canadian, in the Montreal context, you know, very much divided between French and English and French and English institutions, uh, including the hospitals and the medical schools, not, not rigidly so, but, you know, there were often Catholic francophone hospitals, anglophone, often Protestant hospitals with mm-hmm. 
apparently the Royal Victoria Hospital until the 1960s, uh, would only have Anglophone Protestants on its board of governors to give you a sense of how divided the communities were. Two solitudes. Yes, indeed, yeah. if not three or four. And uh, yet here's also saying, you know, it's, this is what, what unites us is more important. Even to the point is when he was knighted in 1911 and he designed his coat of arms, he has beaver and he has a fleur-de-lis. So he even... Beaver or maple leaf? There's a beaver... Beaver and in the beaver's paw is a is a fleur de lis, fleur de lis. So here he is embracing, even in his arms, the the, the elements, the the diversity of Canada. Again, like I said, highly unusual. But he was a highly unusual person. Well, he also uh, and this exemplifies, as you say, uh, belief that medicine was a unifying field. Indeed, yeah. indeed, and and again to serve a common humanity. The other element about his library, which was interesting, is he established a library and left provisions for, um, you know, its upkeep. But he realized that that's limited. Only so many people can go and physically visit a library, especially one in the great north and far away Montreal, Canada. So in addition to that, he put extreme importance on the idea of a bibliography of his collection because that would be how people who weren't in Montreal who couldn't come visit it could still benefit from at least what he thought were the books they should be familiar with even yeah. if, even if they didn't have all of them there or didn't have the first editions or anything like that it was called the Bibliotheca Oslariana and it's divided into several sections his first section was the one he cared most about the prima 66 men and only one woman. Yes, yes. And I always like to ask people if they can guess who the woman is. And these are the people he thought had the greatest impact on the development of medicine. So people usually are a bit stumped or they'll say Marie Curie, which is understandable, but not. It's Florence Nightingale, who really modernized nursing. And she was empathetic. Yes, she was a very, a very fascinating character in many, many ways. And... Her style of teaching, medicine, and uh, not medicine, but nursing, and the, the models she set up, she set up a nursing school in London. When the Montreal General Hospital decided they needed trained nurses, they sent out four trained nurses from the Nightingale School in London to come to Montreal to set up a, a training school for nurses. Nursing, until fairly recently, was a hospital-based profession. You learned it by going to a school affiliated with a hospital. My aunt did. She, she learned how to be a nurse at the Vancouver General Hospital. That's what she did for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. What was fun is, in our collection, I was poking around. I love poking around our collection. You know, you just pull stuff off the shelves. You see what you've got. It's a load of fun. So I pull off one book, and I noticed it was um, a surgeon's vetimacum. So it's to bring with me anywhere. So ready reference book. But inside was an inscription, and it was to a nurse saying, you know, good luck for establishing uh, nursing in Montreal. And it was from Florence Nightingale and signed by her. Nice. Yes, and it was a gift to one of the students who was going out to teach in the mid-1870s. I think I it was 1870. I think I'd read about it somewhere, but I didn't know what it was or where it was. Right, and, right. And, and I just came across it and I said, what a wonderful collection when you could just... Yeah find such cool things when right. you pull stuff off the shelves. Part, part one, then, of the, uh, the bibliography, which is, again, very much a, a sort of a biography and bibliography, is made up of, uh, as, we, as you've said here, men who made uh, the original contributions. So the cardinal importance, this focused on the cardinal importance of individuals in the history of medicine. Yeah. Okay. That's it. you're you're bringing up a very good point. So, on one level, it sounds like if I can use yet another hockey analogy, like the All Star Team of the history of medicine, yeah. and also to yes, Osler very much as an individual identified with mentors, but also represented an understanding of history which was very much based on you know the great men often and their great discoveries. So, you know, social scientific or Marxist understandings of, of history, which, you know, develop in the 20th century, were definitely not part of his understanding of 
historical evolution. It was very much people often, you know, people like Vesalius who were working in opposition to received wisdom, to, to understand things deeper. Yeah. Uh, it was how also many other people did and still continue to see history for that matter. And it's also, as you said, biographies, I think, are, are in biographical approach to things gives you something tangible. It's, you know, social forces can be a very opaque, oblique way of understanding how yeah. things operate. So you can relate to it, can't you? Exactly, yeah. exactly. There were only uh, 750 copies of the uh, Bibliotheca Osleriana, mm-hmm. uh, printed by Oxford University's That's right. Clarendon Press. But he died really just trying to put these biographies Right, yeah, right? yeah, that's right. And nephew took over. And yeah, it's it, it, the the story is quite an interesting one, a funny one uh, in some ways. So Osler had huge plans, like many of us, you know, far too many huge plans and far too many hours in the day, and it, despite all that he accomplished, so he did know what he wanted to do and how he wanted the uh, bibliography to work, and he wanted to do a number of. Uh, biobibliographies of individuals like Harvey and Vesalius. It didn't really work out that way, but he said, I do want someone to do the bibliography, and ideally they'll do it before the books come to Montreal. That's how important he thought this doing this right was. Mm-hmm. And he recommended it was the son of one of his cousins, a man named Dr. William Willoughby Francis, to, um, to take over. So Dr. Francis who had been, I guess, abandoned by his father as a child. So when Osler was in Montreal, became a surrogate dad to him mm-hmm. and his brothers and sisters. And again, this wonderful person who was warm and charming and would send them letters and bring them gifts and all of that. When Osler was at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Francis lived with them and then uh, went to school there. And then he worked at McGill. And then after the war and after Osler's death, took over this project, which was to do a bibliography. Now, do a bibliography sounds, on one level, kind of easy. You know, you just write up what's the title and everything like that. Dr. Francis very much felt the hand of Osler in this has to be right. This The, the point of this is not just a list of books. The point is this is a monument to medical history, and it's got to carry all of that. So Francis was a perfectionist. He was very careful with what he did. It took 10 years to write the bibliography. And the the sad-slash-funny thing was Dr. Francis moved into Osler's house. Now, Norham Gardens, where 13 Norham Gardens, the house in Oxford, was quite large. It had all the books in it. At that point, the only in other inhabitant of the house was Dr. Osler's wife, widow at this point, Grace Revere Osler, Dr. Francis moves in with his wife and his child, infant child. Now, Grace Osler was sympathetic, but she increasingly felt like Dr. Francis was dragging the job along because he was living off of her. So she got increasingly frustrated with him. And there are these letters that she writes to uh, a mutual friend of theirs saying, he's just dragging this out to, you know, so he can freeload. He's not working hard enough. And she, you know, more than one person has said, I don't think she appreciated just how complicated the work was and how difficult the work was. But then also to how much pressure Dr. Francis felt to do this well because his hero and the hero of so many other people said this is, this is critical. And um, the sad thing is she died in 1928 so she died before the bibliography was finished and before the library was open. So the books get shipped over to, to McGill from Oxford late 1928. The bibliography comes out, and then the library opens in 1929. So it's, we're celebrating the 90th birthday of the opening of the library and the centenary of Osler's death this year. Okay. You, you actually mentioned um, the Montreal architect. Percy Knox. That's right. So did they actually what did, did they actually build a library? Yes, yeah, they did. Okay, so the story is they decided in consultation with Lady Osler, they being the um, the Dean of Medicine and others at McGill, that really the Osler Library deserved to be a separate library, not just a collection on the shelves in the medical library. And that 
it, the, the library itself would be a, a shrine, and I don't use that in a facetious way, a shrine to Osler, to the extent where his ashes yeah, were going to reside. Osler niche. Yeah, the, Os- niche. the Osler niche is the fulcrum of the room. Now, this was built in the Faculty of Medicine's building at the time, the Strathcona Medical Building. And it's a beautiful, beautiful building. It's still here. It was opened 20 years before the library. And it's got these beautiful marble halls. And the library itself was up a couple of steps. And you walk in. And so when the doors are open, beautiful oak doors, oak-paneled library, uh, glass doors, just stunning. But when you'd come up the stairs, you immediately, your vision would go to the far end of the room where there was a plaque of Osler's with his profile. And beneath that in recessed into the wall were his ashes and his wife and his wife so she died although they hadn't been designed for that and when he died in 1959 dr francis's ashes were added so the irony is lady Osler couldn't get rid of him when he was alive and and he's still stuck (laughs) for eternity at this point the the wonderful thing is in 1960 Five, when the Faculty of Medicine moved into the McIntyre Medical Building, which those of you who are familiar with the Montreal skyline, is a round building near the peak of the mountain. It really stands out. Um, they felt so strongly about the importance of the library that they dismantled it and they reconstructed it completely as was in the new building. That's how strongly they felt about having Osler in their midst. So he had to come with they them. moved his ashes. Moved his ashes moved the, 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 everything about the room, all the bookcases, all the paneling. So where is it now? It's in the McIntyre Medical Building. And where's that? That's just up the hill from Sherbrooke Street. So if you know Montreal, I, I, I'm in my office, because I have a north-facing window, I can point to the building right now can and see, see it? it. Yes, we can see it. It's the round building oh, yes, up to, right. it's more or less underneath and a bit to the right of the lookout. On the yeah, mountain. Take a photograph of that. Great, and the the. So where is it on the first floor? Or? It's in a part of the building because it's a round building, and the Osler Library is a rectangular room. There is a part that sticks out from the round part, and it looks like a fishtail because it's not a, a rectangle. It it goes in its recess to pick up with the curves, but they put the library in that section. Okay. Now. It was also a chance to expand the library because the library has grown because since 1929, the library has continued to collect not only rare books, in part transferring 19th century material from the medical library, but also purchasing rare material and a a collection of scholarship on medical history. So these would be things written by scholars. Uh, And so there are over 100,000 items in the collection now. Mm. And this is all open to the public. What happened, one of the, I won't say one of the dark, one of the dark days of my life was July 13th, which was a Friday the 13th, last year, I got a call at around 8 o'clock, I was on my way home, and I was told there's a fire at the Osler Library. Now, I've been with Rare Books for a couple of years now, but my successor was attending a conference in England, so I got this call that's telling me because you were head of that library because I had been head of the time. yeah I had been head of the I've been with the Osler Library for a dozen years head yeah. in the last few years so I went there as quickly as I could and what had happened was on the roof of the Osler was a terrace a wooden terrace and that had caught fire probably by accident but there were flames twenty feet up shooting up on the roof and of course even if there was no fire in the library. The, the amount of water that was used to put out a fire like that, of course, is always a great risk because you have books underneath. Thank God the roof had been redone a few years ago, so it didn't collapse and it didn't leak except for where the drains were. So there was some water infiltration into the library. Very little of the rare collection was touched. We managed to save it all. At one point, I was walking in the building. This must have been about midnight because I spent all that night just identifying things and working with emergency crews to remove the stuff that got wet because that had to be frozen as soon as possible to stop it from mold or deteriorating. So the thing is, if you freeze things fast enough, 
you stop any deterioration. And then if you deep freeze them, you actually withdraw all the water molecules, and that's a way of restoring them. Then you, then you can thaw them out. Yeah, and then you, then you thaw them out, and then you just put them back on the shelf. Um, they usually show sometimes slight damage, but you can work with that. But that's what I was doing. But at one point, I'm walking in the building, and there's literally a stream of water coming through the ceiling, it's going from the roof, it's coming down, it's hitting a pipe, it's going along a pipe, and then it's dropping from a pipe right into a stairwell. So slightly, had it been two feet to the right, it would have been hitting our medieval manuscripts. So thank God, you know, there's funny, there's a phrase which is being lucky in your bad luck. And that's exactly how I felt. I said, here I am, we're lucky in our bad luck because the water's coming in, but it's not hitting any of the rare material. And we were able to rescue everything. We moved everything out of the library. And within five months, we had relocated it temporarily here in Rare Books, a rare material, and in the adjacent library, the circulating collection. And it was all accessible, fixed up and accessible. And the now we're restoring the building, the library. Currently? Or Currently, yeah. So the, they're not there now. They're not there now, but they'll be back there once the building has been fixed up and facilities say it's okay and it's we're able to move them at a time when we're not going to disrupt people like midterm when students are working with the material or anything like that so we're incredibly incredibly lucky and grateful you know it's every everybody's nightmare of fire or anything like that but yeah. yeah but thankfully in this case we had enough enough good security and good climate control and to ensure that the damage was minimal and everyone pulled together to rescue the collection to make the collection accessible and then to remove it and it's it was very heartening it was heartening to see how everyone pulled together and how me personally how emotional it was you know when when something hits you know many people in their life they'll talk about it. if you're in an accident or something at the time you're sort of in shock or you're in action mode you just say okay what do i need so to do you, you do automatically uh, yeah. get the adrenaline or whatever exactly and so like i said i spent all all that night into the next day just pulling stuff out making sure everything was okay and it was only when i left and i realized i stunk of smoke i was coughing that i said oh my god what happened and then when we were clearing out the library at one point we were taking measurements because i had to clear out two kilometers of shelving here in rare books to house the rare collection and i had gone with a colleague and thankfully she had left the room because i was practically in tears and i just kept saying to looking where osler's ashes were and i just kept saying i'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm so sorry but it was but it's got a, it a happy really, end. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. Could I could didn't have anything to be sorry about. No, I just sorry it happened. It's like yeah. seeing something terrible happen to someone you care about a great deal. But yes, it could have been a lot worse. And so this weekend, we're welcoming mm. about 150 people from the American Osler Society who are here. They study medical history, and because of Osler his impact on medicine in general, but his love of books and medical history in particular, mm. Osler becomes a defining theme of, of this organization. There are Osler societies in London as well. There are ones in Japan. The the people who are coming this weekend for their conference next week... This is are, May 2019, by the way. Yes. Yeah. They're, um, they come from the United States, from Canada, from Europe, and they from Asia. They don't always come to Montreal every year. Though. No, they move they, around, they move around every so year. Happens yeah. this year. Okay. This year, because of the centenary of Osler's death, they're coming here. And right. so they're here to um, celebrate Osler, and we have an exhibition up for them that my predecessor and my first boss at the Osler has curated, and the honorary Osler librarian has curated another one on Osler's Leonardo da Vinci collection. And so it's a great opportunity to have everyone around together to to just enjoy this spectacular collection. And and what's nice about McGill and being a public institution is everyone's welcome to, yeah. to come and see the material and work with it for no other reason than you're just curious. It's a wonderful thing. I think as a bibliophile and as an Oslerian, 
and Dr. Francis and other predecessors who believed in this have said, it's not here to be hidden, it's here to be shared. And there's nothing greater than to see the amazement in people's eyes when they do something like hold a medieval manuscript for the first time in their hands or look at something and say, you know, this is what Voltaire signed or here's, here's one of David Hume's letters or mm-hmm. anything else from our collections. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, finish off with... Uh, Coleridge, who uh, Ulster was a big fan of, and uh, it's from the Ancient Mariner, and I'm, I read I read it um, somewhere. I'm not sure if it's attached to. Uh, there is is there a grave of his somewhere, or this is basically it's the the niche, right? That's it. That's Ulster's grave. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this uh, I'm not sure where this appears, or if it appears anywhere, but it goes. <laughs> Pardon? I thought this is dramatic pause. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's well beyond dramatic. <laughs> Do you have to Here look it up? <laughs> Here we are. He prayeth best who loveth best all things, both great and small. So I assume that describes. Yes. Oldsler, he loved all things, both great and small. Indeed. That's a very nice way to end. Thank you, Nigel. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Christopher Lyons, who is the, the head librarian of the Rare Books and Special Collections at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Thanks again. Thank you.